Jeremy, growing up, or I guess maybe now, I'm curious, what shoes of yours would get you the most upset if someone stepped on them? Just curious. Ever? Yeah, yeah. Ever? I would Uh say that I owned the original AIs, and I did have the uh, original Kobe's. Okay. So those were the two that were like really like you don't mess with. Yeah, I remember those AIs, and you're, it's funny because you're a Philadelphia man. Yeah, and when I, and when I when I wrote this question down to pose it to you, and people will know soon in a couple minutes why I posed this question to you, but I took you for an AI guy. Figured that you had those AIs. What ninety seven, ninety six, ninety seven range? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know absolutely. that takes that they takes were comfortable me, too. They were comfortable. I think I had a pair of AIs. Mine would be, I would be really upset if somebody stepped on, especially if, if it's somebody in a Celtics jersey, especially <laughs> if he stepped on my Reebok pumps, man. Oh. Yeah. I had those pumps. Reebok pumps. I don't know if you ever, if you ever wore those. No, I didn't wear them. I didn't oh. wear them. I knew a lot of people who had them, but I, they weren't mine. You know what? They worked. You put them on and it was mm-hmm. the pumps with the basketball in the front. I'm sure a yeah. lot of people can visualize them right now but you just pump that basketball up mm-hmm. on the tongue and you could feel it in the ankle like those things really? worked. yeah yeah oh, okay. it really did it wasn't just marketing i i stand by reebok pumps <laughs> so <laughs> bring back the pumps yeah yeah absolutely it just takes me back so uh so yeah just thought i'd pose that hello and welcome to pop culture five i'm thomas senna and with me as always is the mookie to my bugging out Though I guess it depends on who's more aggressive <laughs> yeah, at any yeah. given moment. You could be the Mookie or I could be the Mookie, whoever's more laid back, I guess, right. at the time. So, <laughs> Jeremy Dove, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good. I, I'm glad you said that one instead of, like, you know, Mars Blackman to your MJ. I'd be like, whoa, whoa, There's Thomas. There's more of a discrepancy, more of a hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd be, like, I'd be like, we got to reevaluate this relationship here then if, you, if I'm Mars. But no, nah. we're probably both Mars in that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're still waiting for our MJ. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm doing good, man. I'm, I'm excited for this one. This is a heavy making you really think about just what the impact this person has had on cinema and pop culture all these years. Like, it's someone who I think, even though everyone knows about, I feel like he's still underrated like we still haven't really appreciated fully this person's greatness yeah and this person of course we're talking about today we're going to go over the five essential spike lee movies Mm. so we're both really excited about that so every week Jeremy and i choose the five essentials of any given topic so last week we discussed our five essential 90s hip-hop songs. It was really fun taking mm-hmm. a crack at our first music topic. Jeremy and I found out a lot about each other <laughs> and our music tastes and personalities and and everything like that. We found out that I'm the Forrest Gump of hip-hop, apparently. You and really <laughs> are. Listen to that episode if Listen you haven't. Listen to that episode, yeah. And, oh, Jeremy, I forgot to tell you that I was involved in the Blaze Battle in 2000. Okay. I was one of the one of the MCs up there, me and Idea. I thought and I we saw actually, you up there. Yeah, now, yeah. Now we were thinking about it. Yep. We made the final Idea bit, got the best of me, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was on HBO. Go check go check me out on HBO. So for watch Thomas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for our first show, we talked about our five essential Tom Hanks movies. Mm-hmm. And I actually want to go back to the movie well. 
and this time, you know, talking about a director. You know, this came about because something that I loved doing over the years, especially throughout COVID, is getting familiar with the filmographies of different directors. And a lot of those directors will for sure will cover on this show. Spike Lee is one of the guys who I went through a lot of his, most of his filmography, actually. And I mean, I knew, always knew I loved Spike Lee and, and I respected Spike Lee, but just there were even two or three movies that I had never seen before that like floored me. I was like, wow, like people don't talk about this Spike Lee movie enough. Like I watched one movie uh, in particular. And I'm like, how is this not get like rated as one of Spike's top movies? I never mm-hmm. really hear about it. So Spike Lee was, was just a, a fun one to go back when I was watching uh, filmographies. I mean, what man, like what's your history with watching Spike Lee movies? Well, um, well, I guess for movies, it's interest. That's it's a little different because for mm-hmm. me, my first memories of Spike Lee are the Knicks playoff games, the Knicks games when the Knicks were, you know, top of the NBA. Like I know for younger people, that's like a weird thing. Like, but the Knicks were like a marquee team in the '90s, and his running back and forth with Reggie Miller in the playoffs. Yep. Those were my first, you know. And Spike was the most famous Knicks fans. But for me, it was always. Being a black man, you go to every black household and you saw like the big VHS. It was, you know, it was such a long movie. You saw that X, that Malcolm X, and it was like, oh, Spike Lee did this and he's on like the back mm-hmm. of the cover. And everyone kind of was talking about that. Um, so that was kind of always there. And I remember one time it was so it wasn't, it was edited. So I did go back and watch it later, like the real, like the unedited version. But my brother and I were over at my grandparents' house, and we were, like, down in the basement, and Do the Right Thing came on. I was probably about eight years old, and it was, like, my first time, and it was on, like, one of the local stations on a Saturday, and from start to finish, you just felt that intensity. And from then on, it was just, like, Spike Lee as a filmmaker, and then as I got Mm -hmm. older, you just start diving into all the movies, the ones from the past and present, and um, he's just been so impactful. So, so impactful. I think, uh, of course, I was familiar with him watching those Knicks games as well and him uh, antagonize Reggie Miller. I think him starring, we referred to him before Mars Black, when he was Mars Blackman. Mm-hmm. In, uh, I know he played Mars Blackman in a movie, but when he was Mars Blackman in the, uh, the commercials with Jordan. Money's got to be the shoes. 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 You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. What about the shoes? No, Mars. Money's got to be the shoes. That's kind of where I first saw Spike Lee. I didn't, my mind when I was a kid, I didn't register that as Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's my, that was my first uh, introduction to just kind of seeing Spike Lee and who he was. Uh, as far as movies go, I, I grew up on HBO as a kid. We had cable, we had HBO. So any movie that came out in the late 80s, early 90s that hit HBO, I watched it all. Um, shockingly, I don't remember a lot of Spike Lee movies that got put on HBO around that time. Or Cinemax. Mm. Maybe Do the Right Thing was on a little bit, but I, I don't remember a ton, maybe. I, um, for me, Crooklyn. Okay, yeah. Crooklyn was on for like, and it might not be because like Cinemax or one of the Encore, you know, one of those premium movie yeah, channels. Yeah. Like Crooklyn was always on mm-hmm. for a while. And Crooklyn was a movie I remember like was a big deal, like, like people in my family going okay. to go see and stuff like that. So I, that, and that's what I remember seeing on those premium channels like HBO and stuff, but you're right. Not a lot of movies, at least growing up that were yeah. like there. It was more like, at least for me, like I said earlier, like the local, 
like those local stations you have, they were playing a lot of like movies that Spike had done, like those Saturday afternoon movie of the weeks. Mm. A lot of times they were Spike Lee movies. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, was, it wasn't until maybe the late 90s. Um, I'm a big basketball fan, as are you. So like when he got game came out, of course, my friends and I immediately wanted to see it had Ray Allen in it. So like that was probably the beginning of like I needed really delve into Spike Lee's filmography and go back and watch some of the Spike Lee that I missed. Go back and rewatch Do the Right Thing like more intently mm-hmm, than when I was right. like 12 and saw Do the Right Thing right. And, and didn't really process a lot of what was going on. Uh, so, yeah, just I mean, he's been around for he released his first movie in what 85 86 his first feature length i mean he released something before that around 83 but he's been damn near 40 years putting stuff out into the world and just such a unique style we'll probably get into specifics about what that style and all the different techniques that he used was just like such a unique you know you're watching a spike movie in most cases yeah and and i agree and i also think it's something where because of maybe the Knicks games or because of sometimes his colorful comments or because of a lot of people's just flat out ignorance and not understanding or not wanting to understand what he was doing then and still now that people have really not fully appreciated the genius of Spike Lee and really one of the great careers in anybody in pop culture and one of the most daring and brave careers that we've ever seen honestly like and don't get me wrong i know we're probably going to do this guy in a future episode and rightfully so mm-hmm. but we i feel like even in the 90s you heard from then and on the brilliance of quentin tarantino yeah. and how brilliant he is spike lee is just as brilliant and to me more daring taking more chances going through more depth doing it his way even more than what tarantino did and i feel like you don't hear you hear i think especially post 2020 oh like these are important movies to watch and they are but as just a filmmaker as a director and just what he brought to the medium people don't talk about that i think he's on that short list on that mount rushmore of great american filmmakers of all time no, I agree. And you you brought up something important as far as daring, a daring filmmaker. And I, sometimes I like seeing filmmakers take chances and sometimes fail mm-hmm. while taking chances rather than a filmmaker playing it safe and making kind of a run-of-the-mill movie and succeeding at what they're doing. But is it all that interesting? Spike Lee, honestly, re-watching a lot of his movies takes chances. Some of it doesn't land. But I think that's fine. Because I think that's interesting. And that that's a lot of times why I want to watch a movie is if it's if it's done in an interesting way. Even if it doesn't hit the mark, that's okay. Yeah, I don't think there's a filmmaker I think of who, for what you said, Thomas, does that more or better than Spike Lee. Where even though you're like, it, like, it's like you said, it doesn't always land. You could probably find directors who if you look at like, you know, we're both sports fans, batting average, their average could be a little bit higher. But Spike's taking much. He's walking a tightrope greater than, to me, any of these directors are. And really showing people, showing America, look at yourself in the mirror on so many layers and so many levels that there's not a Spike Lee movie that you're not walking away from. And you're going to have not you can't just have one conversation. You know, if Thomas, if you and I go and we do a Spike Lee 
marathon, that's seasons worth of dialogue on yes. those films. And that's a credit to him. Even if we don't like the films or want, we're split on it, there's still so much meat on that bone. And I feel like there's very few people I can say that about. Definitely. And I'm looking forward to today uh, exploring in more in-depth five of those films. Five essential Spike Lee films as chosen by Jeremy and I. And we're doing just his scripted films. So no documentaries, even though a, a couple I could understand if people like would say like they deserve to be on there. And I understand that. But we, we decided just to do scripted f- films for this essential list. And going forward, that's probably what we'll do, too, if we do other directors and, and stuff. It's just kind of fe- we're sticking to feature films mm-hmm. uh, here for sure. All right, let's get into the rules of what we're doing. So we're coming up today with a list of five essential Spike Lee movies. Since I'm the host this week, I have three choices. Jeremy will have two choices, but he does have veto power if he chooses to use it. That's how it works on this show. If you're not the host and you have two choices, you do get veto power. This is the fourth episode Nobody's used veto power as of yet, even though I think we've both thought about it <laughs> at one time or another, Jeremy. Absolutely. It was close. You've had some close ones, but <laughs> you're still good. We'll see about today. Yeah, I'm curious about today. So that's how the game works. Uh, so let's get into our choices, shall we? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's go. All right. So with the first choice, that would be me. I'm going to get the one out of the way. So, okay. so we can both breathe, so everybody can relax and know that the his basically his masterpiece, in my opinion, his the one that everybody knows him for. That's out of the way, so we can just kind of hash out like the other four. That's probably where it gets interesting, mm-hmm. is after this first one. So, of course, so I'm going back to 1989. This is the mayor talking. All right, all right, doctor. Come on, what, what? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. And it's going to be do the right thing. Yes. So, Jeremy, I actually want to start with you here. Like, what does do the right thing mean to you? Such an important movie. Yeah, I think it's on a short list off the, you know, one of the five films that defines America and define not just America in the 20th century, but America, period that you need to have in all of cin- all of American cinema like it's that important. I think it's a top 10 film of all time. And not only that, you know, we did The Simpsons a couple episodes ago and The Simpsons, you know, as far as with TV and pop culture, they came out the first episodes were in 89, but they kind of then showed what the 90s would be as far as culture, as far as attitude, sensibility. And I feel like Do the Right Thing, it came out in 89, but to me, it kind of showcased what the 90s would be as far mm-hmm. as film and cinema. It was a good like starting point for like, this is what we're going to have in the 90s. You know, the 80s was kind of glossied up and, you know, a lot of like franchises and big studio pictures. The 90s was going to get back to like some really great, you know, some great studio stuff, but great independent and just kind of showcasing this attitude. I just think Do the Right Thing is... It's realism, it's creativity, it's honest, raw truth, it's that daring, controversial, it's all of that at its best. And you're right, it's Spike Lee's masterpiece, and for his third film that he ever did to do this kind of movie, 
And to me, I, I look at it, I give him credit for keep going because to me, after this, it's kind of like, why even keep going? You, you kind of <laughs> nailed it. Yeah. But I give him props. And, you know, another thing, Thomas, I thought about is the opinion on do the right thing has really changed over the years. But in 89 and then even into the 90s, the it was very controversial, very divisive. Now people kind of are saying, giving it its due, but it didn't, it got attention, but it didn't, a lot of people were slamming it. And this is one of the few movies that then and even more now made me fall in love with Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. Was hearing how real and honest when a lot of film critics and a lot of white film critics didn't want to understand it. It didn't make them feel good. It made them feel uncomfortable, so they bashed it. Siskel and Ebert were honest and raw, and both of them said this was the best movie of 89. Both of them have it high on their best movies of the 80s, and how much of a travesty it was that it didn't win Best Picture. So Do the Right Thing is, of course, his number one. And I was going to ask you jokingly, so you're not vetoing? No, this isn't going to be a veto. I think both of us, this is one of those ones where we both knew probably coming in like what what the number one pick was going to be. And we know how important it is. I think I'm glad that you brought up the ridiculous backlash that it got at the time because people were just, I think they viewed this as just an angry piece of art, mm-hmm. just something that was just full of anger. But I don't, I, I rewatching it, like I don't, I don't see it that way. And I've re- I've watched this movie countless times, and I never really felt that. I actually felt like there was a lot of like I think Spike did a good job of weaving in. There was a lot of tension that he weaved in, but there was also a lot of like release valves kind of mm-hmm. through throughout the movie, some comic relief. So it wasn't all tension, even though he did that that really well. Like uh, I think I think it came out with a bang, even like when Rosie Perez was dancing to fight the power. It was like an aggressive, like, here's the movie. Spike Lee's like, I'm announcing myself. I'm announcing this movie with just this aggressive dance that Rosie Perez was doing to this Public Enemy song. And that's one of the more memorable intros to a movie for me, too. But that was by design. I mean, everything, obviously, Spike does is by design but then you had like these colorful characters throughout and even somebody like radio rahim we know he had a tragic ending in the movie but radio rahim was like a fun character to watch throughout the movie let me tell you the story of right hand left hand it's a tale of good and evil hey it was with this hand that cain iced his brother love these five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. Bugging Out by uh, the great Giancarlo Esposito, Smiley, uh, Senor Love Daddy, Mr. Senor Love Daddy, Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. He did a great job of like basically kind of narrating a lot of uh, some of what was going on. So you got these colorful characters. There were some lighthearted moments, especially between Ozzy Davis and Ruby D. some lighthearted stuff. But then you have tensions building. I think Spike did a good job of weaving in lighthearted moments and tension. There was still that buildup of tension, but you weren't sitting there just feeling bummed out the whole time. I'll say this. For me, what I always got was what you said. The, it's, it's an intense movie, but you get the funny parts and funny 
characters and funny jokes in between. As I've gotten older and rewatched it so many times, it's because, like you said, it's like, oh, Spike's just, he's an angry black man just going off. It's like you see the humanity he's given different care, the humanity he gives the mayor, even the humanity Sal has at times. And different people have this, you know, smiley, different character humanity that you see there that people overlooked. And to me, that's the, the brilliance of this movie and the brilliance of a lot of Spike's movies, the complexity in all these characters. No one in this movie comes out looking perfect or great. Everyone is flawed. Now, you can say some more flawed than others. Absolutely. But every character is flawed. And I think he so brilliantly showed this is, you know, way before Childish Gambino said this is America, this movie was saying this is America. And he showed us, like, we all have these biases. We all have a part to do in making it better. But will we actually do that? Yeah, yeah. And some of the famous scenes, too. And you mentioned like he's showing that we all have these biases. There's that famous montage of all the racial Mm -hmm. insults from various characters kind of speaks to that point. Like, you know, we all have these biases, maybe not to not that overt, but Spike was making the point in an overt kind of way. That was a choice, a great choice, in my opinion. You had... Just like, like tensions really started to escalate, I guess, when like bugging out Radio Rahim and Smiley go into the pizzeria. That's where mm-hmm. the movie kind of flips into what people remember the whole thing being uh, is when like Sal yells at Radio Rahim to turn off his boombox, ends up smashing him. He calls him he calls bugging out the N word. Mm-hmm. And that's when things just really flip. And it comes to this this tragic, quite frankly, conclusion with radio rahim but just just so powerful like it's hard not to like i get just uh, like emotional watching watching those scenes watching when the police arrive and confront and and radio rahim's life like i get emotional i know it's going to happen and it still impacts me you know yeah and and that's a, a a brilliance on spike's filmmaking and all the performances and it's the sadness of the reality that we are still no better off you know, almost 35 years later, we're in this exact same spot in this country. And, you know, that's yeah. what he's showing. You know, that scene at the Radio Rahim and the names that people are yelling out is just like this person, just like that person. I, I know them. I don't even want to go because it just will take you down a yeah. different path or meet down a different path. Yeah. Those are that, that's the influence of that's happening across the country. But even in New York at that time. That's what was going on. You know, that's 89. That's when the Central Park Five happened, you know, and they were wrongfully arrested and all those things. And it's just that's what he's reflecting and showing. And I think so many times and we'll say this throughout probably, but the daring is not just because people will look at it and say he's showing what's wrong with like and the the racism and and the issue with white America. And absolutely. But he's showing what's wrong with everybody. And he's showing what's wrong with, you know, within the black community, what's wrong with all different people of color. You know, for me, this conversation, I mean, this movie led the conversations that I have. I can be honest with my own mother, where she's like, well, he didn't do the right thing by throwing the trash can through the window. Mm -hmm. And I had to say to her, I said what Spike Lee said, well, you're thinking about that and you're forgetting you're valuing property over the loss of life. Yeah. And that's the same conversation we we tend to have with people nowadays they just Mm -hmm. focus on the people breaking windows and 
And I think it's in, in many cases, and even this movie, like Mookie had an understandable rage about him that came out. And to me, in my opinion, just like people who protest police brutality and things now have an understandable rage that comes out in certain ways. And uh, it's, it's interesting, like those conversations that, that you mentioned, like it's prescient. That's in 1989, Spike wrote this and, and, and it started those types of conversations. And that's just, that's still happening. And what you see there is even at 1989, People were saying you can't play this in the theaters because there will be protests and riots and how racist those reviews. That's from movie critics and just, you know, commentators, how prejudiced and racist that is. I think that's a little bit of pride. We would call that out in today in 2023. But that's what people were saying, that we can't sit through a movie and watch this. Like that's that's where that's what he was the heat he was getting, honestly, at that time. Yeah, unjust heat from that angle. And not to mention, I mean, this is lower stakes, but like this movie should have won the Academy Award Mm -hmm. and it was never going to win the Academy Award in 1989. It didn't even, did it get nominated? No, I feel like uh, a screenplay got it and supporting actor for Danny Aiello got nominated. Okay. But um, Danny Aiello was really good. He was really good in this movie. Oh, like, he was. Yeah, he was very good. But um, but there were. I mean, there were also there were a lot of really great people in that movie. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me that Danny Aiello is the one. Not to take anything away from Danny Aiello, but it's interesting to me that he was the one from the movie who who uh, possibly got recognized uh, as a no surprise his performance. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, driving this driving Miss Daisy is the one that won from that year and spike lee's pointed out the obvious kind of tensions and uh, with you know driving miss daisy that movie winning and his didn't even get nominated and it probably mm-hmm. should have won so it was just a crazy interesting climate back then and yeah. now <laughs> yeah, it shows what's wrong with the academy awards yeah honestly <laughs> yeah, it shows for sure and there, there's a to me there's a bigger award like it, I think it's great to win Best Actor or win Best Picture, but it, it's that award—not an actual award—but of like what culturally moves people. People aren't talking about Driving Miss Daisy, no, no matter what. You can talk about Morgan Freeman's career; people aren't going to go Driving Miss Daisy. That's not the yeah. first thing they say. Well, people but, are talking about Driving Miss Daisy because of Do the Right Thing. Oh yeah, well, how shitty that whole <laughs> result is. Right. Yeah, Do the Right Thing right. has kept Driving Miss Daisy actually in the in the conversation. Right. Okay, you're right about that. Okay, I'll <laughs> give you that. I'll give you that. But but Do the Right Thing has only yeah. grown in time. Absolutely. And it's getting it's a movie that will never be forgotten and on its own where Driving Miss Daisy will only get as far as like list of countdown of biggest Oscar mishaps or snubs or yeah. wrongdoings. So I think you know, over time that's even bigger that we've corrected that in our own minds and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to ask you about the end too with Mookie and Sal speaking the next day. I think that was, that was an interesting choice by Spike to have their conversation play out that way and have it end on almost like amicable <laughs> in mm-hmm. some ways kind of note. And I know Spike, there was some talks he has, he actually, there's a really great book about Spike, he kept a lot of notes and he wrote about making mm-hmm. do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And if you yeah. haven't picked it up, go seek it out. It's a really great, book. great, great book. But he was kind of wondering how he should end the movie. And there was some talk about, you know, should 
Mookie and Sal have this sort of like, it's almost like they come to an understanding in a weird sort of way. Like, what do you think about, about that conversation, how the movie ended? I think to me, it always sticks out as it's, it's odd, but I think, I think why to me it's odd is because it's so real is when you have moments like that is kind of like, where do you go from here? And it's not even, it's not someone, just a guy on the subway or whatever, or like, you know, maybe a guy a few blocks away. It's a guy like you work for, you, you see all the time. And and I think for me, what I get from that is once tempers have cooled, kind of, they're still high, mm-hmm. it's the next day. I feel like Sal and Mookie in that scene both know they're not going to say it, and that's two men, not one. But radio, to me, Radio Raheem's death, we know it's with Mookie, but I think it over it even hits over Sal. Like, yeah, it's my place, but it's messed up what we saw last night, and someone someone got killed. Yeah. And it's kind of like, in their own way, that's the bigger story. That's the bigger picture here. But there's frustration. There's anger. Like, they're still there because it's like, hey, this is my for Sal, my livelihood. For Mookie, hey, this is this is my neighborhood. I lost yeah. a friend, another right. friend probably, you know. So it's like all those things are still there, but I feel kind of like it's always hard. And I love that scene because it's not trying to make anyone feel good. There is no feeling good after that. Someone yeah. got killed. They witnessed someone get killed. They probably, to an extent, feel like maybe they have, it's not their fault, but a little blood on their hands too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, so Sal it's, doesn't have this dramatic turnabout of character, you mm-hmm. know? And he wasn't all bad or whatever during, in the movie, but he doesn't have this. There's not this dramatic turnabout where Sal cries and he's like, I'm sorry, I get it now, this and that. Like, it's more subtle. It's way more subtle than that, which I appreciate. Honestly, that's how really it is, though. Yeah. You're not really getting those in real life of people... It's not that. It is like subtle and it is kind of you're still holding on to those those ways. You you know, let's how old do you think Sal is in that movie in it? 50s you would say? Yeah, like, I think yeah, it seems like his 50s. His sons are probably in their 20s, so he's yeah. probably, Sal's probably in his 50s. So he's got 50 years of that built up of the the prejudice even yeah. though Sal is like he thinks he probably thinks he's not because hey, I have a, a pizzeria in a black neighborhood, but he's got 50 years of that going. And it's not going to just go away overnight. I think the last thing I want to say, too, about just kind of how Spike captured the setting with how hot it is. Uh, you can feel like I, I can feel the heat permeate through the screen when I watch it. Like So I think that's just it's a great symbol for the tension that we're seeing on screen is that heat. But he did a really great job of capturing that that mm-hmm. crucial element. He even, I think he even wrote in his book how important it was for him to capture the heat of the day oh yeah because that's something and through you know what i study like being a psych major and doing social work and that movie kind of points it out that like crime rises when it's hotter out Hmm. like it just and that's i'm someone who likes the heat but that's one thing i've talked to a lot of people who work in even you know tougher places neighborhoods than me they they can't stand summer because they're like at least when it's cold people are off the streets interesting and so I think it's great that he showed because you can reference this movie when talking about, man, you're outside, it's hot. Some people, hey, you don't have AC, you can't really 
It's hard to escape it. You're ticked off and tensions rise and everyone's kind of on that boiling point and you don't know what's going to set something off. Great point. And this an example of what a great filmmaker Spike was and is just incredible. Do you have any last words on, on do the right thing here? No, I think we, we nailed it. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's a special movie and it, and it, it never gets old and watching it and it never gets old and having conversations about just how deep and how brilliant it is. Yeah. Yeah. So now is where it gets interesting as far as out what we're doing here on this podcast, as far as five essential Spike Lee movies do the right thing. Number one, obvious choice. Deserves it. Deserves mm-hmm. all the bit of praise. So I'm curious, Jeremy, number two, what's well, your choice? I'll be honest. I think do the right thing is definitely the number one. But I think we look at Spike Lee's filmography, there are two slam dunks. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to go to 1992. What I think is the greatest biopic movie of all time, and that's Malcolm X. We didn't come over on the Nita, the Pinta, and the, and, the, and the whatchamacallit. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Starring Denzel, just, you know, Angela Bassett's in it. So many great actors and actresses. But, you know, really the, the, you know, the story of Malcolm X. And it's, you know, based off of the autobiography of Malcolm X that Malcolm did with uh, Alex Haley. And I really just think this is number two. And that's how great Do the Right Thing is, but it's number two when you talk about anything with Spike, Essential, or Greatest. It's these two, and then the rest of them kind of have to compete. Because you look at just, it's Spike at near his best, I feel, and Denzel at his best. You know, Denzel is playing Malcolm X the whole time, but he's playing like four different characters in this film. And the brilliance in which, you know... Denzel and they're pulling this off because if you look at it I feel like now so that's why it's always good to have the context Malcolm X has a more favorable light when it comes and I'll say it to white America he's a little more understood still not full it's still there like some like resentment but for a long time in black America it was different Malcolm X was respect but white America all they talked about in the history books it would be and Malcolm X was with the Nation of Islam, and they were a militant group. Next, yeah, and then they give, you'd always yeah. hear that word, militant, 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 and they militant. would try to pit him against Martin Luther King. Exactly, it was Martin Luther King's, and 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 this is paraphrasing, like probably a lot of what people thought was one of the good ones, quote unquote. Exactly, or like they would try to whitewash. They still do Martin Luther King's legacy, but they did the opposite with Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, for sure. And try, and that's exactly great point, and. That was a lot of whitewashing history and trying to make it seem like, well, they both were for civil rights, but they were like opposite of each other. And they both had tremendous respect for one another and understood where the other came from. But if you just see this movie and seeing what it did as far as the boom in sales from the autobiography of, of Alex Haley in the early 90s, that was very huge to see on hats, on T-shirts, that X and what they represented. It just showed what in the story and the battles of Malcolm X and who the real man was. And a flawed man, but a brilliant man, a great man, and a man who really, you know, the vulnerability and the honesty in which you saw those different changes in his life. And Denzel, you know, to walk this 
they knew how important this was for black America, but also what this film could represent to America. And it's on that short list. You know, Spike to me is two of, of the top five movies that define the story of America. Do the Right Thing, Your Choice, and Malcolm X. Those are two on the Mount Rushmore of it. And seeing what how he did that and just how Denzel, and they knew the pressure that they were under. It's just a phenomenal movie, and I think it's uh, it's something that you have to, if you haven't seen it, you hey, stop listening to us and go watch it and then come back. Yeah. But to me, there was two obvious choices: do the right thing and Malcolm X. Yeah, uh, if I had a veto, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use it because I wa- I rewatched this movie uh, in in the, in the past week. Uh, this was uh, when we when we talk, started talking about like let's do a Spike Lee episode. Malcolm X is one of the movies that I actually went back and rewatched. And to me, it's like it's like how a biopic should be. It does hit the beats. Of course, you have to hit the beats of like the important things that happen in this person's life. But I think it was just done so so well. Spike Lee has his perfect touch on it, and I I thought it was interesting the way it started too because it almost to me Spike uses uh, and I want I want to know what you think about this. Like he he used actual footage at the beginning of the movie because mm-hmm. Spike wants to he wants to say that this isn't just history. This is what's going on now, and he got that message across by using the Rodney King footage at the beginning of the movie and i thought i thought that was an interesting choice uh by spike and and you you knew right away like you know this movie is relevant for current times current times being 1992 when this movie came out still relevant now in 2023 but that's what spike wants to convey is this is always this type of message and movie it's always relevant and and starting to show also you open the movie by showing this is what Malcolm was trying to talk about. This is what he was trying to talk yeah. against and fight against. This is what he's talking about. It's not hate speech. It's talking about freedom. It's talking about having that right. It's showing America and the ugliness. Hey, and then when you see people who are different than you, they get mad at you. It's like, well, take a take a bow. This is why. You're the reason why people are mad. So it's like he's showing this is what Malcolm X was talking about. And at that point, you know, we're going on 27 years after his death, you know, 65, 92. So that's the brilliance of it because people quickly want to go to that's the past. That's not how it is now. And they want to just make it like it's not still relevant to people and almost take away people's pain or lessen people's pain. And that's the brilliance of him as a filmmaker. You're not going to take away my pain or my anger. I'm not going to make you feel comfortable. I'm going to make you do a deep dive and look at yourself. And I think that's what this movie does. Yeah, and Spike does a great job, as you mentioned, of showing all the different facets of malcolm x denzel had to play a bunch of different types of malcolm x and uh i just love like at the beginning and there is a lot of comic relief like this in a lot of ways this is a very funny movie mm-hmm. uh, so like i point to like malcolm getting the conk hair, st- hairstyle at the barbershop and yeah. it was kind of funny and symbolic we know how malcolm felt about that hairstyle as his life progressed but it was very funny the way Denzel played it. And I learned something, too. I learned by watching the movie that the straightener burned because it had lie in it. Mm-hmm. It kind of caused me to do a deep dive and, like, why? Oh, really? 
yeah like why is yeah. he reacting that way and i was like wow they put lie in that stuff yeah <laughs> like, that stuff you gotta get it out quick yeah yeah mm-hmm. so but that was the theme because malcolm was critical of that hairstyle years later but spike kind of played it for laughs at the beginning and he played it for laughs when spike lee was in the movie playing malcolm's best friend shorty mm-hmm. and so when shorty was was administering the the hair straightener he played it for laughs right before arguably the biggest event in spite in malcolm x's life like the pivotal yeah. moment in malcolm x's life there was a laugh uh, a scene full of laughs right before that because right right after that that's when malcolm in the movie gets arrested and he ends up going to prison so i think just just would do the right thing i think spike lee's great at threading that needle of we're gonna have some comedy this is you're gonna laugh but there's gonna be tension there's gonna be some serious stuff high stakes stuff going on here at the same time and i think he's just i think he just threads that beautifully no absolutely and just even when malcolm you know Denzel, you know denzel playing malcolm's in prison and that transformation when he you know meets the gentleman and starts talking to him about you know be proud of your blackness and looking how hey you don't even realize how much you've been whitewashed and how much you've been programmed to not like yourself to not love yourself to not be proud of who you are and i think denzel just nails it in that scene where you know he's out of jail and goes to chicago and finally meets uh the honorable elijah muhammad and he's the tears are running down his face but he's not sobbing and i think if he would have been sobbing it would have been too much but he's overwhelmed by that emotion just to see the tears i'm just like the brilliance of denzel in that scene just always gets me every time yeah, Denzel was also brilliant. I think back to when his visit with Archie mm. after he got out of prison was mm-hmm. sad because Archie, played by Delroy Lindo, great was actor. great actor. He's been in a lot of great Spike Lee movies, mm-hmm. too. He's awesome. He played Satchel Paige, uh, yep. uh, too, as well. He's so good. So Archie was, was the gangster that Malcolm fell into in New York. And they ended up on obviously bad terms. Like I think Archie was like shooting at him. His guys were like chasing him down. Yeah. The last time they encountered each other. So Malcolm, after he got out of prison, went to go visit Archie. And Archie was like a shell of himself. I don't mm. know. Was it drugs? I don't think they explicitly said, but no, but or he's, just he's, old. You could tell. He, I feel like it was a combination, like hard living and different. Yeah. You know, bad, just bad times. But he's he's pretty much like disabled. In, you know at this okay. point really yeah so so there's this guy archie who last malcolm saw him was they were on bad terms and malcolm shows compassion to him came to uh just to thank you thank you for saving my life and i think back to when we were on the streets of harlem trying to gun each other down i wasn't gonna shoot you man it was just my rep. And he goes and talks to him, and that was just like that. That was that was a sad moment, but it kind of spoke to like a transformation that Malcolm made. I well, think. you know that scene is powerful to me, and I'm, uh, that's awesome that you brought that up because when you know Malcolm's there and he's you know he's he's disabled, he's trying to help him out, and he asks him, you know, I think it's like a dice. It's like either like a dice. I forget. It was like a dice roll. But he brings it up, and it's like, however many years later, he's like, "Did you really roll that?" And then Malcolm's like, "I, I don't, I don't know, I don't really know." And it shows like Malcolm how he's transformed and moved on, 
But that was his heyday. The other guy, Delroy Lindo character, right. that was his heyday. So he's still living in that past because that's what he had. So he it still was affecting him all these years because that was when he was the man. But Malcolm's like, I don't I don't remember. Like, you know, I really don't know. And I, I always that touched me because to see a moment in two people's lives, even where they both remember it, but the other person who's really processed and moved on and the other one who has it. Yeah, yeah. That I don't know if you ever you watched The Wire, right? Yes, yes. So that reminds me at the end of the it was season four. It was the when they were following the middle school mm-hmm. uh, kids. My favorite season. But there was a moment at the end that reminded me of this. Is almost the inverse where. So it was Dookie who asked Michael, like, "Do you remember when we threw water balloons at those kids and did this and that?" And Michael looked at him, and I believe Michael when he said, "I don't remember that." Yeah, and that's something that they showed. That's how they introduced the characters to us mm-hmm. in that first, in that fourth season of The Wire. Is them being kids and doing kind of kid-like things. But mm-hmm. when Michael like genuinely looks at Dookie and says, "I don't remember that. I'm sorry." Like you just that like really hit like that transformation. You could just yeah. see that transformation, and you that and then you, that's a good point you brought up with Malcolm when he can genuinely say, "I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't." Like it was a. almost another person who experienced that yeah yeah because it's just like because i remember that scene michael was moving on he was a different guy yeah and dookie was still became a stick-up artist yeah yeah so he was kind of he was that transformation was happening they were like that guy is gone and dookie still had that innocence he still was a kid at that point and i think like that that happens a lot of times in life like you know where doesn't mean one's better than the other, but someone's growing and kind of moving forward. Another person really hasn't. And I think that's like the the realness, but the sadness of that scene to me was like, yeah, he still was holding on to that. We also saw another transformation in a way from Malcolm when he went to Mecca. Those scenes were beautiful. Like mm-hmm. as far as just visually, a lot of shots that Spike used were interesting. You have a lot of Spike Lee flavor. You had the tracking shots. Uh, he loves those tracking shots. He loves those tracking shots. and But they do tell, like, they kind of put you in the character's perspective in a sort of hazy kind of way. But those scenes uh, it, when Malcolm went to Mecca were just so well done, just gorgeous, I thought. So beautiful in showing the beauty of Malcolm going there with an open mind and open heart and really needing to be like, you know what, I'm a member of the nation. of I, I believe in this faith and this religion. But what is this really all about? And I think that's what's beautiful to me and, and inspiring to me is we never arrive as people. You know what I mean? So even if you're a quote unquote expert, which is what people would have said, he was the face, the voice. Like, you know, Elijah Muhammad was a, the honorable Elijah Muhammad, but Malcolm X was the face and the voice. But yet he got humbled enough to say, I'm going to go here. And what's this really about? I need to really get back to my roots here of why I follow this this faith that this religion and it's just a beautiful scene where he just said you know I saw blue eye blonde hair brothers yeah and that that was just such a beauty of like man like that's that's the way it should be you know we have our biases to get in the way but he saw what it really is now you may be shocked by these words but I have eaten from the same plate drunk from the same glass and pray to the same God with fellow Muslims whose eyes were blue, whose hair was blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of white. And we were all brothers. True. 
ironically, it helped lead to his downfall. Mm-hmm. You know, like because when he came back, uh, I don't know if before that that he was already getting on uh, the nation's. He was bad he was side. Already, yeah, but th- this sort of I mean, this contributed a lot to uh, to to that even further, and it led up to that just gripping sequence the the lead up to the assassination and the assassination itself were just really really tense moments and how he he he, that nails you know a the the tracking shot and you know sam cook the chain's gonna come like that great song being played where malcolm malcolm knew his time was coming and all the things not just in the movie but real life doc like malcolm knew it was I'm not, I know some people say he felt that day, but you definitely yeah. knew in that time he knew it, it wasn't it was coming soon sooner rather than later, yeah. and just how dead on they reenacted that scene. But then also what I found out later was I didn't know until doing research. Like when I saw the movie in the '90s, Ozzy Davis really did do the eulogy for Malcolm X. Really. Yeah, so then oh when Ozzy gosh. is re- yeah. what he's speaking at the end, that's what he said at Malcolm X's, you know, funeral all those years ago. They will say that he is of hate, a fanatic, a racist, who can only bring evil to the cause for which you struggle. And we will answer and say unto them, did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? You haven't done the right thing. Was he ever himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? For if you did, you would know him. And if you knew him, you would know why we must honor him. Spike and Ozzy were close, so he got Ozzy Davis to do what he had. That's his actual eulogy. Wow. Wow, I, yeah, I didn't know that. I I just thought that the like Spike was obviously Ozzy Davis was in do the right thing. I, I but gosh, that when that eulogy was so important. I mean, because it like addressed some misconceptions about Malcolm X. Yeah, like, right there in the eulogy. And I thought mm-hmm. that that's what that's that was super important for people to hear, especially honestly, like white Americans who were who who may have been watching the movie. I hope everybody watched all through that eulogy and lit really listened to what Ozzy Davis was saying. Yeah, because that was that was a really important way to end that movie. Gosh, and yeah, with Nelson no, Mandela it, and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, what an ending! Absolutely, absolutely. That's what I love about Spike too is seeing Ozzy Davis in these movies, seeing Ruby D in these movies. You know, those are 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 black actors who my parents knew. But it's great that Spike paid that homage because that's how I got to know them mm-hmm. and, you know, loved them, loved Ozzy Davis. You know, that 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 love seeing him. So many movies he did even later in his career hit me. And when he passed, it was one of those celebrity deaths that I was like, man, it felt like it felt like an uncle had died. You know, it felt like I knew Ozzy. And, you know, um, I so I love the fact that he not only reached back to get Ozzy in his movies, but also to look at the real Ozzy and ask him to do that. It's just something that I'll never get over because like, to me, the guts like that takes a lot to ask of that, you know, because like, Hey, you knew this, you were friends with this man. You're not just reading like words on a script about him. And I'm asking you to almost 30 years later, 
you know, reread the eulogy you gave for your friend, that's a tough ass, and it shows you the relationship and the respect and trust that Ozzy had for Spike. And this is an example of people shouldn't just dismiss this because it's a biopic. And I think that tends to happen a lot. And I'm guilty of it, too. Like, I wasn't too jazzed about I still haven't seen the the Freddie Mercury biopic. Yeah. And there's yeah. just certain because I kind of think I they did one in the 90s about Babe Ruth that I thought was quite honestly like a pretty bad movie with John yeah, Goodman. It yeah, uh, it was a bad movie. But yeah, but so I'm always skeptical of biopics going into them. Oppenheimer, I, I liked. Um, that was, that was a really hybrid. Good. That was a kind of a biopic, but it wasn't necessarily structured that way. Um, so it can be done well. I think Malcolm X is maybe the example of how to do a biopic well. And uh, it's just incredible. And you're right. If if you hadn't seen Malcolm X, if it's been a long time since you've seen Malcolm X, I think this was, I watched it last week and it was, I think it was my fourth time seeing Malcolm X. Do yourself a favor and go back and, and watch this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think you're right, Jeremy. I think those are two, like, do the right thing with our first pick. Malcolm X with the second pick. I think those are probably the two that you can point toward as far as essential Spike Lee's. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really great pick. I'm curious now about it gets what. Hard. Okay, yeah, and I'm curious about what you'll think of my third pick. So okay, okay. I wanted to, and I did go back. I did rewatch this movie uh, last week as well. So this is another one that I went back and rewatched because I really loved it the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And but I wanted to go back to like a different time in Spike's career, not like late 80s or early 90s, but maybe kind of venture out a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a movie that not a ton of people I feel anyway talk about. But when I've researched reviews on it and stuff, it gets good reviews. Like a lot of people really like and they like Mm -hmm. the acting and stuff. So I'm going to go back to 2002 with 25th Hour. Talk to me, okay? We haven't been talking. This is our last night. No, 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 no. It's not our last night. My last night. So, all right. And I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go. kind of thinking about it. Okay, yeah. so I think this is a really good, like, this is the first really great kind of post-9-11 movie. One of the things that really stood out to me was, first of all, the premise. Okay, I, I love the premise. It's a guy and his friends and loved ones dealing with his last day of freedom because he's going to go to prison for seven years. So it's Edward Norton mm-hmm. who's going to go to prison. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Rosario Dawson, Brian Cox, Barry Pepper, like a really great cast. So it's just this whole day of them dealing with the fact that Edward Norton's character, Monty, is going to go to prison. So right. he's dealing with that. He got into dealing drugs with the the Russian mob and everything. So I, I think that premise really like I think super interesting right off the bat, right? Okay. And then I think it has a wonderful. I think it's a one of his better uses of like a soundtrack throughout the movie to kind of build what's going on. I think it has an incredible soundtrack. It adds a lot of tension to what's going on. It's just like the the it's symphonic music. It conveys it conveys like something important's going to happen. I think it has some really like some of Spike's like best scenes. There's a scene with Edward Norton looking in the mirror, and it's basically like what they call the the fuck the city of New York scene. Yeah. And it's just like this this really great kind of monologue that Edward Norton's giving. There's one that I thought about since I first saw 25th Hour a few years ago. It's when uh, Monty asks one of his friends to beat him up the morning that he was going to go to prison because he didn't want to go into prison 
looking like he does and looking clean and stuff. So he wanted to go in beat up right. and haggard so he wouldn't look good and would maybe it would look tough. I don't know. But he just felt like that was something important to him. I need you to make me ugly. I can't go in there looking like this. I already told you. It's all about the first day. If they get one look at me looking like this, I'll be finished. Come on, this is, you said anything. You just said you'd do anything. This is what I need. What are you thinking? Well, I'm gonna give you a black eye. Nobody's gonna I mess with you. I need a lot more than a black eye, pal. You fucking help me out here? I need you to really fuck me up. Can't do it. And when he was kind of pleading with his friend to like, he just do me this favor, and just kind of the build up there, I thought was a really great scene. Uh, Brian Cox does a great monologue at the end about it's like a daydream. Brian Cox played Edward Norton's dad in the movie. He's driving him to prison. But he's just like, what if? What if we just kept driving and we I drove you cross country? And he's so he's kind of giving this monologue about like what life could be like if yeah. Edward Norton just wasn't going to prison. Uh just a lot of trademark Spike Lee techniques too. The quick double shots that Spike likes to do. They have tracking shots. But I think and it's, I mentioned the 9-11 of it too, and that's kind of that's a lot of the backdrop of the movie as well, like what the city and what kind of what the feeling was immediately after 9-11. And when this movie was in production, it was before 9-11. So Spike made the choice to actively like have them looking down on like the Twin Towers, just uh, on, on where the Twin Towers used to be on Ground Zero. And they had referenced like the tensions with, they've been mentioned Bin Laden and kind of the, a lot of tensions there and and everything. So I think it's maybe one of the first movies that came out that really like tackled nine, like aftermath of nine 11. And that was kind of the backdrop of gotcha. it. But so I rewatched it cause I was like, let me make sure. And after I watched it, I'm like, okay, I, I think I'm pretty confident in choosing 25th hour as one of his, his essential movies. And I think it's just different. It feels like different than, than a lot of his other movies. And I kind of, that means a lot to me too, is kind of give get a different flavor of, of what Spike Lee can do. That's an interesting one. I, I'll be, I'm going to be honest. I have seen it. I have not seen it in a long time. Okay. So I will. And it was something I did kind of, I thought about, you know, when getting ready for this episode, because it's like kind of like there's a few movies in that era and like clockers, like there's a few that are yeah. kind of like in that kind of like mold and he's kind of venturing out. I think though, I think we might have the first veto in, okay. in pop culture five. Not that it's not, a, it's a great, it's a, it's a heck of a movie, but I just think if this was like best or favorite, I would be like, yeah, like that's great choices. I see it, but I think you're just essential for that. And I go back to the core of what we've discussed that like alien who doesn't know spike lee and it's like yeah we're gonna show you five spike lee movies i don't think 25th hour it, it has the techniques but of what spike is really known what he's driven home as a filmmaker as a storyteller i think it's not in the top five essential okay that's fair that, that that's completely fair but it's a great wondering. choice okay. I, I i i like the i love the attempt i really do oh. <laughs> i do Alrighty, so we have Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, no to 25th hour, so I'm going to have to choose another one. Man, that could be an honorable mention. History. I guess that's the first veto. Okay, so now uh, it's back to me, and so I'm going to actually go even more recent than okay. 2002 okay. with this choice, and it's one that I also rewatched for this podcast as well, 
And I'm going to go to 2018. I'm going to go with Black Klansman. Well, I've established contact and created some familiarity with the Klansman over the phone. I'll continue in that role, but we'll need another officer. Surprise, surprise, a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. It's with John David Washington, Adam Driver, uh, Laura Harrier. The basic premise is that John David Washington, it's based on a true story. He plays a, a detective in Colorado Springs who basically makes a phone call and through the phone infiltrates the KKK. I actually kind of want to get your take on this. And I think you only have one veto. And I'm curious to see what you think of this movie, because this is probably like the third or fourth time I saw it. And and it made me confident that this would be uh, one of my choices on this. So I want to throw it to you here, like Black Klansman. Like, how do you feel about that movie? I think it's a really good movie. I think um, it's one that because he did win his Oscar for it. So it's a part of his career. Not best director, but he did win an Oscar for it. I have no problem with this being. It's not obviously like in the like. There's the, the top two, and then there is another tier. Oh sure, yeah, for his like, essential. Yeah, exactly. It's not. I'm not. This is this movie's not in the do the right yeah. thing. Yeah, Malcolm X tier. I won't call it a great movie, but a very good movie. And I liked John David Washington. And I think that's where I was impressed with what Spike really did to kind of highlight him. And how well John David Washington was in this movie. In his chemistry with Adam Driver. But also the way it shows Spike progression as a filmmaker with it. Where I feel like it's the same themes. Like, not the same, but a lot of the themes that Spike will talk about. But with a little bit of a twist on it. And a little bit like it feels like he's not stuck in... You're not like he's stuck in 1992 or something like that. Or the 90s. He's up to date with it. So I thought that this was a really good movie. It has those funny parts, those light mm-hmm. parts. And I think it has what what we're kind of saying like in these options, and Black Klansman has it, which is I think the brilliance in a lot of like great movies or great shows, which is you have the plot and the character, but like those little scenes that are throwaway scenes, but the dialogue's good, and you're like, yeah, I know people like that, or people can talk like that, I know guys like that. And like those little, I think of just Black Klansman with different movies, like that still has it. And that's a great thing to me about Spike, which is he has those scenes that you're like, it's almost like that he, you know, tape someone in the barbershop or he tapes some people talking because it's like, yeah, you know, people like that who talk those ways. And they're not like, oh, this big dramatic scene, but they're like a filler, but it, it kind of works for it. So I think Black Klansman is definitely, it's a, it's a good choice to be on here. Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think this is an a, something that an example of possibly one of my favorite things about Spike Lee's filmmaking is his weaving in comic relief with heavy subject yeah. matter. And quite frankly, like I think he portrayed the white supremacists in this movie as doofuses and morons, mm-hmm. which they are. But he also found a way to still portray them as intimidating and i think a lot of it because of the power that you knew that they wielded in the movie but it was more so you can you can laugh at them because they're idiots but you're still like afraid for john david washington and adam driver and laura harrier you're afraid of for them for their safety because these men and women are still they still wield power they could do a lot of damage but throughout the movie they're idiots like 
Alec Baldwin at the beginning. He doesn't know his lines when he's doing this little racist monologue and mm-hmm. he, he, he and he's having to like stop and say what's my line what's this and that like he's he's a, a moron the cops are morons in this movie the kkk members are mostly dumb and gullible in this movie david yeah. duke is really gullible in this movie and in real life apparently because this actually happened mm-hmm. so i think how he portrays them was pretty fascinating to me he portrayed him in that way, but then obviously with the context of the situation and them as like a group, they still wielded this power and this intimidation. So I think he right. weaved that he weaved that line to me in an interesting way. Isaiah Whitlock <laughs> makes an appearance saying yeah. his uh, his famous she his famous she. He, he, that's in maybe at least that's in twenty fifth hour too actually yeah it is. Uh, it is. <laughs> Uh, Ron Stallworth's first phone call at the KKK was hilarious. And Adam Driver's like, did you re- use your real name? And he's like, oh, shit, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was really funny when he's talking to his the sergeant and the superiors about actually his the plan to, like, infiltrate the KKK and go to the meeting. They want you to join the clan? They want to meet me first. They want to meet you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you probably shouldn't go to that meeting. Good call, Sarge. His conversations with David Duke on the phone were all really funny. So I think there's a lot of, this is a funny movie, but it's also very tense. <laughs> well, and I think you made, you made a good point there, like a, a great point, which is he shows they're being dumb and doofus, but it's not to the point of it's a caricature totally. And it's like, oh, like we just don't take it seriously. Because yeah. when it comes to people with prejudice, racist it's not just i think one size fits all so it's not just the the dumb there's people who very iq wise at least or gpa wise or status wise seem oh very smart and all that but still are racist and there's people who are dumb and goofy but that doesn't mean that they're not still scary and threatening you know, and that they just because you're in a position, like you said, they're in positions of power. Not plenty of people who are in positions of power who are still dumb. But guess what? That's what's even scarier. They're dumb, and hey, they're in these positions. So, like, you know, we don't lose the sight of that. But it still shows the the idea that at its core, when these prejudice, these racist thinking by people, it, it's stupid. It's dumb, but people hold on to it. So I, I think that's the great point you made. Like, and that's really shown well and just hard to do as a filmmaker to yeah. show that. And it's not like, okay, he's making the KKK a joke totally. And no one takes the movie or the intensity of what, you know, like you said, John David Washington and Adam driver are doing in this movie seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the movie, as far as the aesthetics go, I think it's a really beautiful movie to look at. I think the colors really pop. I think yeah. they're not muted. I think they're they're really vibrant colors. Even like the the, the browns and the the grays, yes. like they're still very vibrant grays and vibrant brown. Like this is a fun right. movie to to look at. It's just very stylistic, very colorful. I think Spike took inspiration from uh, exploitation movies, which they do reference in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he and Patrice, John David Washington's character, uh, Ron and Patrice, are talking about exploitation movies are talking about Pam Greer and stuff and so I but I think Spike took inspiration from exploitation movies because this kind of looks like an exploitation movie yeah in its presentation but that's that's where I you know like 
Spike always, like, movies are visually awesome, and the color in his films is a thing, but you see the progression in it. It's not like, all right, it's the same. It's like, oh, yeah, Spike's known for that, but it's done in a different way. And I think that's why I think is really cool by him is it's a Spike Lee joint. You know it's a Spike Lee film, but he still has – you see him evolving as a filmmaker. And I think that's one thing, like, the great filmmakers over time – whether you look at him or Scorsese, you know, what's great about uh, Scorsese, Raging Bull, compared to The Departed, they're they're great and they have Scorsese themes and things, but they're different. And you see the evolution. He's not staying stuck back in 1980. And I think credit goes to all great, you know, people, artists and great filmmakers who keep evolving. But I don't think we talk about that with Spike. Like, he doesn't, he's not staying stuck back in the 80s when he first emerged. He's going along and leading in a lot of ways what we're seeing as filmmaking trends. That's such a good point. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. And also with Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing, we had talked about how relating the political and social climate of when the movie took place to when it was released. Right. And I think that happened here too. Like Spike mm-hmm. captured the political and social climate and tensions from 2017 in a movie that was set in the seventies. And I think one of the criticisms criticisms, cause we talk about, we talked up top about a director can take chances and not always hit the mark. And I think sometimes the way Spike did this was, was a little heavy handed in black Klansman. And I think that was some of the criticism uh, when it came out. And I could see that I could acknowledge that some of what he was trying to say was yeah. a bit heavy handed, but it was still compelling. There was a conversation with Ron and Patrice about changing things from the inside. Pam Greer is doing a thing, but in real life, it just takes on black folks. What if there was a cop trying to change that? From inside? Yes, from inside. You can't change things from the inside. It's a racist system. Just give up like that? No. We fight for what black people really need, black liberation. Right, right. So can't you do that from the inside? No, you can't. The white man won't give up his position in power without a struggle. And I thought that conversation was really interesting when Ron and Patrice were talking about that. Spike chose to end the movie with the Charlottesville footage. And I don't know if this was just like an emotional trick that Spike played on the audience or what. Mm -hmm. But my wife and I saw this movie in theaters when it came out. And we were bawling in the theater at the end of the movie. Like we couldn't leave when the lights came on. We had to compose ourselves because we were just crying our eyes out when the Charlottesville footage, because it was hit, it hit hard. It was back to back with the cross burning that, that ended the seventies portion of the film. Mm-hmm. And then it went right into Charlottesville and it made us cry. And then I watched yeah. it again two years ago in just in my living room. And I teared up at that part. And I watched mm-hmm. it again last week and I was like, I knew, I know this is coming I know that blah, blah, blah. And it made, I tear it up again. So I don't know if it was just like, if that was super heavy handed on Spike's part, if it was an emotional trick that he played or if it's, I don't know what, but the way he chose to end the movie, like just always made me emotional. Well, no, um, I think that's thinking about like that scene and what he's done in these movies with that and thinking about just how you said, you and your wife reacted and you know you by yourself to these movies i think that's what i think of it's the i think of two things the the power of spike's filmmaking and storytelling like i've said you know but also i think it's the sadness of 
you know, we can look at things in the past and maybe like on certain things or issues or stories or topics, it really is like that doesn't happen anymore. And it can still make you sad. The sad part is, to me, and I'm not saying this is what what made you emotional. I don't, I you know, but like the fact that we have to keep doing that, the fact that this issue's still here, but the fact that people still want to keep acting like it's not here. And how many tragedies do we need for people to then? Then it's like, what does? And then like the same people then will be like, oh wow, it really is here. And then a year later, something else happened. Oh wow! And I've had to tell people, people who friends of who were friends of mine. I can be honest. I had this conversation with you a couple years ago, and now you're calling me again. Talk. Why can you believe? And to me, that's yeah. the sad part, which is like. You shouldn't have to keep doing that if, if you're a filmmaker of color or of, if you're of different gender, different sexual identity, and you're, you're bringing up these issues, but you kind of have to. It's the sad part. You have to keep reminding general audiences, like, this is what's going on. You know, this is to entertain you, but this is to reflect. This isn't of the past or this isn't make-believe. This is what's happening in everyday life. You're absolutely right. And I, I wonder... If Spike, he was probably the, I think maybe the best person to make this movie. Like, I wonder how he, like, how, how you think he treated the material as opposed to maybe another director doing a movie about Ron mm-hmm. Stallworth infiltrating the Klan in the 70s. Like, I yeah. wonder if another director, how they would have handled the material as opposed to how Spike's handling it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I think, which is kind of like a good thing. There's other you know, black filmmakers yeah. we can look to then honestly with Spike it was it was a few, but it, you know, there's more now. But I kinda think he's the guy, but I kinda wonder what like a Jordan Peel would kinda do with it in a way. Um I know he kinda goes with social but like there's a horror there's, feel yeah. to it. But I think like I seeing his talents and knowing him, I'm inter- I don't think he always has to do that. And I think He's probably the only person that comes to mind off the bat that I'm like, I would be curious, not saying he would do it better than Spike, but it would have me intrigued if that would have fell to in his hands, what he would have done, looking back at it. Okay. Yeah, that's but. interesting to think about. Yeah. So I think so. Uh, I think uh, we, we have Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. So three essential Spike Lee movies as chosen by Deremy and I. Now we're to number four, Deremy. This was a tough one, but I was thinking about it and thinking, yeah, essential. And I'm going to go with, this movie came out in, I believe, 96. (laughs) This bad boy is going to Washington, D.C. for the million man But I'm going to go with Get On The Bus. And it came out, you know, it's about black men from and all different kind of, you know, all they have in common is that they're, they're black and they're men, really. And they're getting making this bus trip from L.A. to D.C. to the Million Man March, you know, uh, Farrakhan. And I remember the Million Man March. I remember when it happened um, and how big of a deal it was. And, and people were saying, well, what is this? Because, people, you know, and Farrakhan definitely is a controversial figure, but people were focusing on him when this march was a much bigger deal and this movie came out a year on the anniversary of the year later after the million man march and i think this film shows the complexity 
in masculinity, but especially, obviously, in black masculinity. And looking at it, when you have people of different political th- uh, beliefs, different religious, different age groups, different sexual orientations, all coming on this bus and really going through things. You have a father and a son who were handcuffed together and seeing them really go through this journey. And the thing is, they don't make it to the march. And it's kind of symbolic of is it is it's about the journey, not the destination. And seeing what these men going through is a topic that just like we've been saying, you know, I guess that's the theme. It resonated then. It resonated before 1995 and 96. And it resonates just as much now. And I love the fact that if you watch this movie, it's breaking down these stereotypes, A. But B, what he's doing that's ballsy. And that's the true sign of a real truth teller, of a real artist, is he's talking about issues and battles that go on within the black community that go on in in this case with black men and he's showing that for the world to see and how you know thomas how scary that is as an artist how daring how vulnerable you have to be because you could try to make it where you always paint you know we you know he coined that term the magic negro and the black characters are just these great spiritual flawless people he doesn't do that he gets down to it and gets real, but he still shows the humanity in people and in these characters. And I can tell you a lot of times growing up with them, you know, I could speak to these people I knew outside of my family and my family. It would lead to a lot of like heated debates on Spike bringing this up for the mass culture to see. And I think that's where I give this movie so much credit because... It just really looks at black masculinity and what it is to be a man and the layers to that and the complexities to that that a lot of people outside the community don't think about, but done in a way that's beautiful and shows humanity and connection for everybody. Yeah, this was one of the I I probably narrowed it down to like seven, I think, movies that I was kind of considering. And this is actually one of them. Jeremy that 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 I had put on the list and I first watched it uh early 2000s I think and then I rewatched it a couple years ago like during COVID when I was going through uh, a lot of Spike's work and stuff and I think this movie needs to get more of its due I think it's a little slow and that's why maybe a lot of people don't Mm -hmm. really like immediately go to it but I think it's it's effective, and I think part of it is because it's it, it builds and it's slow, and you get to get to know all these characters, and it shows that even though they're all headed to the same place and they're all black men, their culture is not a monolith. Right. There's all kinds of different opinions, and different thoughts, and different types of people, as you mentioned, like of different ages. There's a gay couple uh, on the bus. Like it shows that that even like within like people are just seeing a lot of people are just seeing like million man march and they think just have one image of like who's going or whatever but within that culture there's there's a lot of different viewpoints and people and i think that was really important for for spite to highlight and the the generational thing (laughs) really intrigued me uh because you had the you mentioned the father and the son but also ozzy davis yes you mentioned ozzy davis again what about you old man Huh? You got an opinion? Yeah, I got an opinion. Also, I got a question. When you use that word that way, are you talking about you two or just about the rest of us? It seems like 
That's the only word you know. But you know, if you were to take that word and turn it over, on the other side, you would find kings and queens. He was the one who was like labeled an expert on, on African-American history. He's the senior citizen of the group. Mm-hmm. And he really stood out to me as far as his kind of role there on the bus. So, I mean, I've, both times that I've seen this movie, I've really enjoyed it. I like that it's a, kind of a slower Spike movie, that he lets it breathe a little bit with without a lot of his techniques. And I can't even think, like, is there a tracking shot or anything like that in Get on the Bus? I don't believe so. Yeah, so so he, he maybe moves away a little bit from, like, making it look like this is a Spike Lee movie, right? Right. right. And you're just seeing the material for what it is. And I, I really appreciated this movie in that way. And I think it fits in alongside, like, because I think part of, like, finding essentials is maybe variation, different types yes. of movies. Great point. Great and, you point. know, and not just the same movie just released a year later with different actors or whatever. Like some directors tend to do that. Even Spike has maybe a handful of movies that are maybe in, the, in a similar realm. But this one to me really stands out for a lot of the themes that you mentioned. I mean, that was very well said. I enjoy this. And the actors in this, I mean, you have Spike actors. I had mentioned Ozzie Davis. You have Roger Guenvere Smith, who's in this. He plays a police officer. I became a cop because a lot of cops up here don't give a damn. Call an ambulance and take 20 minutes. You call a cop and takes two hours. So when you get the call? ASAP, brother. So you never pulled a Rodney King on a brother? No, I haven't, and I hope I never have to. You hope? What do you mean you hope? He's been in Spike movies. He was in Do the Right Thing. He was smiling and Do the Right Thing. He's been in a bunch of Spike movies. He's really good. Bernie Mac. The Albert Hall, who was in Malcolm X. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he was in this. So, so he just got like a really great Richard uh, ensemble. Richard Belzer. Yeah, Richard Belzer's in this. Yeah. Yeah, just a really nice ensemble cast. And this is an element of Spike that, that I think people need to see and appreciate. Well, and I think to your point, I think a lot of Spike's, when in the moment, was very controversial but I feel like, especially in the past, like, maybe five years, but I, I'll just say it. I feel like since Trump, since yeah. Trump got in, since 2017, and then definitely after George Floyd as well, a lot of people are looking at Spike's movies in a different way. This is the one that I haven't heard people bring up, and I'm surprised by it. And I think you might have a great point. It is slower. It is different. But I do think... It has to be that way because you're not going to tackle those issues and showing that that stereotyping that still happens to a lot of different communities where, oh, you're you're this. So you, you all act this way. You all think this way, like showing like, no, within this group, it's a lot of different layers and you're going to get people with different opinions. And people who clash. And then, like you said, the gay couples, a lot of people are looking, you know, that's an issue in a lot of communities, but in the black communities. And then, you know, hey, that masculinity and what? You're gay? Or uh, col- in a lot of Spike's movies, that colorism. And that, you know, I forget uh, who plays him, but that the cop character yeah. who he's light-skinned. Yeah, that was Roger Gwynvere Smith, yeah. Okay, there you go. Yeah. And then, so he's getting looked at and and kind of judged for, hey, you're, you're, you know, he's carrying that, carrying that kind of like, trying to fit in, trying to fit in with his culture. And Spike brings that up in a lot of different movies. And I just think, you know, that father-son battle of, you know, attacking the 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 myth about, you know, black fathers 
but showing like, hey, this father wasn't perfect, but he's trying to do it. And this son isn't, you know, he's on that borderline here, but they're trying to make it. And he's trying to do this to save his son. And he's willing to do that. And, you know, despite that it's not perfect, you can see and feel the love between that father and son. He's hitting all those issues. And if you make it fast or make it like spicy where it's like, oh, there's a shootout by the bus or, you know, like all these things, you're not going to really be able to dive into that. So I think this movie just is something that doesn't get the credit it deserves, but it is a brilliant Spike movie. Yeah, it's one of his more introspective movies. Yes, yes. It feels like. Like he he wrote movies, especially his first couple movies. There were about experiences that that were familiar to him. But this one, it seems like he's more like digging at some sort of more inward soulful kind of kind of look at not just himself, but his his community, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like a really introspective movie. It was really fascinating. And I found that too, like my me, I'm a Latino man. I felt like a little bit by watching this movie that it was almost voyeuristic for me. Yeah. It was it was instructive. Uh, I really loved it, but it was almost I felt like it was a it was a little voyeuristic and it was interesting to me in that way too. No, because uh, I think through his movies, you see the differences, but you see the similarities we yeah. all go through. And like you said, you're a Latino man. I'm a black man. But a lot of those same issues that you see on Get on the Bus can be talked about in the Latino community as yeah. well. Masculinity. Yeah. Uh, things involving like the uh, LGBTQ community. Like that's mm-hmm. similar viewpoints, I think, in the Latino culture as well. So I, you're right, actually. You know what? Yeah. Like, yeah, I did relate to a lot of things. You know, or it's like polit- you know, that person on the, came on the bus, he's a black Republican. Sure. And then it's like, oh, not all blacks vote Democrat. And then you can relate to Latin- not all Latinos vote this way. And it's like, well, no, like Latino man, a black man, we're different people. Like we're not all the same, but like society wants to put people in a box. And that's brave to do because Spike Lee at, at this point, let's be honest, within different cultures, there still is an underlying, like with the black cultures like the chitlin circuit where there's a lot of like there's black movies black comics that really just black audiences see mm-hmm. or there might be you know latino audiences see or asian audiences at this point spike is a controversial filmmaker but that different audience different not just black audiences are going to see his movies so to put this out there and everyone's seeing this and i think it's like you said it's probably introspective what we had this million man march at this time in the 90s which is a really interesting time for the black community in the in the 90s in america what does this all mean is this really progress are we are we going backwards like i think you're right it was an introspective moment for black people for black men and i think for spike yeah well said very well said so that's our fourth choice as far as essential spike lee movies we got Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Black Klansman, and Get on the Bus. And now it's to me to round this out. I'm Choice hyped. number five. Oh man. So <laughs> So I'm trying to I'm debating right now. Do I want to go with the more of a straightforward one that you would probably see on like, oh, this is one of Spike's most important movies, or this mm. is you know. But there's mm-hmm. one that I think shows a facet of Spike and his filmmaking and the themes of the movie. That to me are so interesting and maybe don't always click, but just 
I don't know if Spike's attempted necessarily a movie quite like that. So I don't know if I should choose like a more obvious one or one that shows like a facet of Spike that I really appreciate. Well, DeVito's <laughs> already done. Okay. So to me, go go with your heart, Thomas. <sighs> okay. Go with your heart. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So for my choice, for the fifth choice, we're going to go to 2000. It's a movie that's kind of hard to find, honestly. I've seen it a couple times, but it's a really hard to find movie. And it's a satire. It's just such a interesting I don't know. I don't know that Spike does a lot of satire. And that's why that's what I find so fascinating. And it's bamboozled. Let's take this form, this very American tradition of entertainment into the 21st century, the new millennium. Okay, okay, no, no, what's the name of the show? We need something that we could sell. Man Tan, the new millennium minstrel show. Wow. Yeah, and it's a satirical comedy with Damon Wayans, Tommy Davidson, Jada Pinkett Smith, Michael Rappaport, Most Deaf... Paul Mooney, like there's all these great actors and hip hop artists, like the Roots are in it, Cannabis, MC Surge, like all these people are in it. So basically, the premise is Damon Wayans is a writer at a network, and his boss is Michael Rappaport, and he keeps turning down Damon Wayans' work and Rappaport, and there's all sorts of commentary in this movie, but Michael Rappaport even criticizes Damon Wayans about not being black enough and Rappaport's married to a a black woman. So he feels like he gets to use certain words and terms and stuff that even Damon Wayans can't use. So he criticizes Damon Wayans for basically not being black enough. Damon Wayans hates it there, but he has a contract. So he wants to get out of his writing contract. He wants to write the worst thing he could think of to get out of the contract. So he could develop some minstrel show with the help Mm -hmm. of of one of his assistants. And so he thinks it's going to bomb. He thinks this show is going to bomb and it's going to be super offensive. But he's surprised to learn that it actually becomes a hit. So that's just kind of the basic premise of the movie. There's just so much social commentary, commentary about blackface, commentary about culture. I think this was such a a daring... (laughs) attempt he spike lee wrote the movie too and it was just such a daring attempt to me spike lee wanting to do satire wanting to make this big statement having the balls to put a lot of these themes in the movie and i think of course there's going to be a lot of people who watch this movie and don't pick up the satire and i think the movie's not for them it's for the people mm-hmm. who appreciate satire appreciate what spike's trying to do appreciate the themes and I, I don't know. I was just kind of blown away just by the Spike's attempt. And it's a very funny movie uh, on its face. But, like, I just uh, – this is something that, like, to me sticks out in Spike's catalog. And I'm a big yeah. fan of comedy and satire. Yeah. And this movie really sticks out. I'm super so happy that Spike did it. And I think it was – I think it was a good movie. I think it was, like, a good attempt – by Spike on satire. And I think he got the right people like Damon Wayans and Tommy Davidson involved to really make this work. So that's my pitch for bamboozled. And I don't know if that's a surprise to you or what, well, but it, a, it's a surprise. Uh-huh. And B, if you would have put this over 25th hour, I, w- I would have not had to use the, the veto fair because this, this is like, yes, like it's, it's a, I think it's a, I, 
brave in the attempt by you, Thomas, because I think there are some, you know, quote-unquote chalk answers you could have given for that fifth spot. But this one is essential, and I'm going to give you some different reasons, like, why I, I totally agree with you is because a lot of what Spike has done in the culture is definitely you start with the filmmaking and the movies, but also the commentary, just him in interviews or he's on a TV show and him speaking real. And that's also like, people don't like seeing someone do that, right? So this is something that at that point and even in time now, Spike speaks out against. And he speaks out against like, you know... um, Hey, wait a minute, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino, you're dropping the N-word this many times in your movies? Like, come on, man, like, you're kind of just going overboard, just trying to show you, you, you're doing it. Or, you know, his comments with Tyler Perry, and they've, they've squashed it, but, you know, Oprah kind of had to play the middle part in that one, but him coming at, hey, Tyler, like, you know, this Medea character, and I respect Tyler Perry and what he's done and built, but I'm, that led to a lot of different conversations. So, to me, this movie kind of was foreshadowing a lot of things that Spike was talking about with black people in the media and in that entertainment and also white people. And I think it's fitting you mentioned the hip-hop artists who are in here and those comedians because the 90s was kind of that time of a lot of like black comedy, hip-hop's really merging into pop culture. And you were getting a lot of like white people from the suburbs thinking they can say the jokes, they can say yeah. the words. and It's in the song, and it's like, what? No, you can't say that. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You you think because you're listening to this CD or because you're watching this stand-up bit or this character on TV that that means that you're in on it and that you get to say it. And it's like mm-hmm. the key thing that everyone, all of us need to remember is not everything is for us. And I tell people that all the time, you know, Thomas, there might be a joke that you say to your brother and maybe it's like, oh, or, you know, a sibling or a cousin. And it's like, OK, but if I say it, it's like, wait, what what are you saying it for? Not everything's meant for everybody. You know yeah. what I mean? And not even just racial. That's why I use the family thing, because there's things, you know, you might hear me say to my mom or my mom say to me. But if you said them, it's like, whoa, what? Tommy? You can't say that. You can't. You're not. No, no, no. And we have to be able to understand not everything is for us. And just because you're married to somebody or you're good friends with someone or, you know, uh, I have a cousin who's married. To, I've heard so many different things. It doesn't mean it's OK. And this movie kind of shows like the dangers of that. So I think it's a great choice because that really d- defines Spike in a lot of ways. Uh, that makes me really happy, Jeremy. <laughs> and this this movie, uh, Paul Mooney's in it. Kind of got the Paul Mooney stamp of approval. Yeah, uh, too. It was it's hard to, to get. Yeah, it's hard to get. So it's it was neat to see Paul Mooney in it. And uh, this one, just I I when I f- remember first seeing it, I watched it. I don't think I watched. It. I, may, I might have said originally I watched it when it came out. I don't. I think I was a little later than that on this movie. But I've watched it a couple times since then, and just really, it just really stood out to me as far as like, I can't believe Spike did this and it exists. And oh my gosh, like satire. So, so yeah. So, this is the fact that it sticks out in his, in his filmography just really does it for me and the themes. So, um, makes me happy that, uh, that, yeah, it got the Jeremy, uh, seal of, yeah. seal of approval Absolutely. <laughs> as well. Well done, man. Well done. Yes. 
So let's recap the list, shall we? So we got, when we, we're going to do this, we realized as we did this that there's kind of a tier <laughs> system yeah. to this. So like the first two that we chose for five essential Spike Lee movies, Do the Right Thing from 1989, Malcolm X, 1992, kind of in their own tier a little yeah. bit. They're important. They're Spike's most essential films. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's those two. So then we have Black Klansman, his one of the more contemporary ones on the list, 2018. I think that's kind of cool that we have a a pretty recent Spike movie, absolutely, on the list. Uh, Get on the Bus, 1996, a super interesting choice in my opinion. Jeremy, a movie that I like that I think is well deserved to be on the list. And we have Bamboozled from 2000. So that's our it. five essential Spike Lee movies as decided by thomas and Deremy. so let's go to some honorable mentions Deremy, uh what do you have in terms of uh, other movies you considered yeah i think for me he got game yeah. was a close one and and if you would have uh, now i'm prepared for you so if you would have taken get on the bus my next up would have been he got game you know with denzel and, and ray allen you know ray allen uh, an nba player that's his you know only movie and that's credit to the actors around Ray Allen, but the direction of Spike How Ray Allen does a damn good job in that movie yeah. for being a pro basketball player. Denzel, and one thing we, we haven't said is, you know, you look at, like, Scorsese has, had De Niro, and he has, like, Leo, Leo DiCaprio now. Spike and Denzel is one of the great tandems to me in film history as, like, director and actor. And I look at, you know, he got game, you know, Malcolm X, but he got game is another example of that. And just how powerful uh, that story is and showing all different facets, the complexity of black life and athletes life, poverty, having that pressure on you of like, hey, you're the one who's going to make it in your family, but also in your community, like all eyes looking at you. Uh, looking at the the hypocrisy of the NCAA, you know, and how that was a big thing before this movie, during this movie, and still today, we were talking about those issues. He addresses all of them in such a powerful way. I mean, that end scene where Denzel and Ray Allen are playing one on one, and Denzel for real gets up four <laughs> zero on him. Ray Allen Ray for real got getting, pissed. Yeah, yeah, like that's just great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Spike introduced me to Aaron Copeland. I did not know who Aaron Copeland was until this end of this movie where Denzel, you know, he gets like a pass from jail to try to convince Ray Allen to go to this school. And when Denzel's back in jail and you see like that Billy the Kid just playing and just rising to crescendo and then, you know, throwing the ball. Like, it, I just love that scene. And I love they made me find out. I'm like, who is this guy? And I'm like, oh, this is Aaron Copeland. No idea who Aaron Copeland was until I watched He Got Game. So that was next for me on um, my honorable mention. Okay. Yeah, I did consider He Got Game. That was one of the ones I did. So I considered School Days uh, okay. as well. It was one that came out in 1988. And I, I do like that movie. It's a pretty cool look at like uh, black fraternities and sororities and stuff in the, in the late 80s in college uh, at, at an HBCU. And uh, it's a fun movie. It wasn't as interesting to me as bamboozled <laughs> mm. um, but I do enjoy school days and I and I think it's a really nice precursor to like not as heavy 
themes is like do the right thing. But I think as far as his filmmaking goes, I think it was a oh. nice kind of precursor um, uh, to do do the right thing. I thought you were going to go with uh, She's Gotta Have It. She's Gotta Have It. Yeah. I, to honestly, I don't really enjoy that movie. Me neither. Okay. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, so. and I know that's not like a prerequisite for putting it on this list, but I just don't think it's like a essential no. for him either. I think kind of to me, School Days is like if you want to go ground ground floor, I think School Days to me would be the earliest that I would go. I, I agree. I just thought because maybe people for essential because it's the first. Yeah. It was it is a groundbreaking film. It, it I look why I said no to it is because it's more like a school like it's an independent movie, but it's like a school... I don't say a school project. No, it did like, feel... It almost felt like a film school project. Yeah. It, had, so it's it did like, have that vibe, yeah. Yeah, so I was kind of like, no. But, like, it's gotten a resurgence over time. Netflix had the show. The Mars Blackman character is very popular. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm like, definitely not a best or favorite, but could it make essential? But I agree with you. It's it's not where I... I I don't forget it, like that. That's part of Spike's history, but it's not where I start with either. Okay. So I'm, I'm with you. This is a really great topic. I know both of us, when we were talking about doing this pod or whatever, like this is one that we both like seem to be on board with for a reason because Spike Absolutely. is amazing. So, so yeah. So that was five essential Spike Lee movies. Jeremy, what do we have on tap for next week? Well, we have low something about this show about nothing. A little bounce, 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 bounce. Our five essential. That was good. Uh, okay, thank you, thank <laughs> that you. Was good. Okay. Wow. <laughs> uh, our five essential Seinfeld episodes. So it's uh, it's a show that many call the greatest sitcom of all time. It's definitely up there, and there's a lot of different episodes you can pick from for these essential ones. And I am curious to see uh, what Mr. Thomas is thinking as far as essential. And if he's going to be, you know, he'll have the veto power. So if he might uh, use that veto on me here. So I'm, I'm excited for it. We'll see how much spite that I have uh, <laughs> <laughs> after getting vetoed this time. We'll see if spite plays a factor okay, in, the, okay. in the next episode. I got to step my uh, game up then. There you go. Yeah, I've, I've, I've already started research, been, been re-watching Seinfeld episodes. It's been a blast to do. So I, I love this topic, Jeremy. So, yeah, I can't wait, man. It's going to be so much fun. All right, it's going to be fun. We'll see you all next episode for five essential Seinfeld episodes. For Jeremy Dove, I'm Thomas Senna. Thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture 5. So long, everybody. and such.